Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act is a form of cognitive behavior therapy, CBT. Cognitive behavior therapy traditionally has been focused on delivering specific treatment protocols for specific struggles. For example, if you were dealing with fears of public speaking, as we see in social anxiety, then there was a treatment protocol for you to get better in social situations or sometimes five different treatment protocols that you could choose from based on the clinician you work with. Or if you were dealing with panic attacks, there was a specific treatment protocol for it. The idea is that we thought of a specific struggles in isolation and not in coexisting with others' struggles. However, since 2000, cognitive behavior therapy has moved from having a single protocol for a specific struggle, like social anxiety, panic, etc., to have a unified protocol for multiple struggles. Because, in the case of anxiety, for example, it's much more common to struggle with different types of fears than a single type of fear. So, if you are dealing with panic attacks, it's also possible that you are dealing with chronic worry. Or if you are dealing with chronic worry, it's also possible that you are struggling with fears of public speaking. Today, I am sharing with you a conversation I had with Dr. David Barlow, the developer of the Unify Protocol. Dr. Barlow received his PhD from the University of Vermont and has published over 650 articles and chapters and over 90 books, mostly in the areas of anxiety and related emotional disorders. He is a formerly a professor of psychiatry at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and a professor of psychiatry and psychology at Brown University. Dr. Barlow was also a distinguished professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Albany and director of the Phobia and Anxiety Disorders Clinic at the University at Albany, SANI. Now, in this conversation, you will hear the basics of the unified protocol that Dr. Barlow developed, what is avoidance and how it works, what is negative affect and how it works, what is neuroticism and how it works? Why it's important to understand emotions? And what are the temperamental personality factors? You will also hear me asking Dr. Barlow for permission to be a little bit sassy. 
and ask controversial questions like, what is a process in behavior therapy? Is process-based therapy different from the unified protocol? What is a transdiagnostic process? Is a transdiagnostic process an intervention? Or is a transdiagnostic process a way in which people cope with internal experiences? So tune in because you don't want to miss how cognitive behavior therapy is evolving and how this conversation may inform your experience in therapy or coaching when dealing with fear-based struggles. Okay, without further ado, I leave you with the episode and I wish you a great week. Bye-bye. So first, I want to say again, thank you so much for making the time to chat with me. I know you're super busy. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's a treat. It's a treat. So if it's okay, I just hope that today we can chat about three things. One is the background story developing the unified protocol. I would love to hear how you think of behavioral science these days. And what do you think of process-based therapy? What are the similarities? What are the differences with a unified protocol? How does it sound? That sounds fun. I'd be happy to talk about all of those things. Should be fun. Yeah. Yeah, it should be fun. It should be fun. So I think I was mentioning at the beginning of our conversation that a couple of years ago, I think it was around 2007, I attended the annual conference of the Anxiety Depression American Association. And you were presenting there three single case studies with a unified protocol. It was you and I think three of your doctoral students, your postdocs. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what's the story behind the Unified Protocol, because you have published so many books that were focused on specific disorders, like specific phobia, panic attacks, social anxiety. And most of the treatments have been treatments that are evidence-based, of course, based on cognitive behavior therapy, but they were targeting a particular diagnosis. So when you presented the unified protocol, there was this shift from a singular treatment protocol to a full approach for multiple diagnoses. So what's the story behind that? If we can hear a little bit about it. Yeah, that's a, uh, um, it was actually a, shift that many people were surprised that we made because um, we, of course, uh, a lot of people are familiar with the treatments we developed for some specific emotional disorders or anxiety disorders, such Mm -hmm. as panic disorder or generalized anxiety disorder or social uh, anxiety disorder. So people were familiar with these programs. And then all of a sudden we come along with uh, to use an analogy from uh, Tolkien and, and the, uh, the the rings, the, you know, the one ring to rule them all or the, <laughs> the unified uh, uh, protocol. Um, so it really has its roots back in the late 1980s or 90s when we were just beginning to develop some of these protocols for some of the specific disorders that a lot of people suffer from. Mm -hmm. Uh, such as panic disorder again, or depression, or um, 
social anxiety. OCD would be another one. So uh, as we were developing these programs and they were based on, you know, the latest kind of uh, diagnostic schemes, mm -hmm. such as the DSM-3 and 4, or the ICD-10 uh, and 11, the International uh, System of Diagnosis, um, we discovered based on the clinical trials and the evidence that these were indeed effective. They were better than treatment as usual. They were more effective than <clears throat> simply supportive psychotherapy, uh, et cetera. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> clinicians such as yourself, Dr. Z, began using them. And, uh, and so, but while this was happening and while these were uh, being disseminated, you know, I did notice, you know, a lot of these programs, when you kind of strip them down, have a lot in common. Mm -hmm. For one thing, there is, you know, a lot of real kind of negative emotion, kind of intense emotion that could be called by different things, it could be fear, could be anxiety, you know, could be uh, uh, depression, but it's all intense negative affect or negative emotion. Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, and the second thing we noticed is that people spend a lot of time trying to get rid of that emotion. Mm -hmm. They don't like to feel that way, understandably, of course. Uh, but, um, <clears throat> you know, whether it's taking a pill to get rid of it, Mm -hmm. or trying to ignore it, or trying to distract yourself from it, or trying to uh, avoid it in some other way. I think you call a lot of these behaviors playing it safe. That's uh, They're safety-seeking behaviors. Yeah, safety-seeking behaviors, playing it safe. So a lot of these behaviors have one function, mm -hmm. you know, one specific goal, and that is to feel less negative affect, less negative emotion, less depression, less anxiety, less, less fear, uh, less anger, et cetera. Um, we also knew by then, this is by the 1980s and 90s now, but we're finding out more about these things from research uh, every year. Mm -hmm. We know that this is, exactly the wrong thing to do that is trying to get away from the negative emotion mm -hmm. uh, if in fact you you in the long run want it to uh decrease so this is the thing that people have a hard time understanding why is it you know that if you take a pill for your anxiety or you avoid going to uh social events because you you're anxious about interacting with people etc why is it that if you avoid those kinds of things they actually makes it worse mm -hmm. that's a paradox it's actually a name for it it's called the neurotic paradox mm -hmm. um and yet we know that it does anytime you have a strong emotion. And it really goes back to, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but it goes back to evolutionary, uh, very strong sort of evolutionary supported uh, functions and behavior. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. So emotions serve a purpose. Emotions are a good thing. You know, we have emotions because they have survival value. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if uh, some real danger is out there and you feel uh, afraid, mm -hmm. that's a good thing. It will motivate you very quickly to escape that danger. If you're starting mm -hmm. to cross the street and you didn't see this car bearing down on you uh, because you were distracted or looking the other way, all of a sudden you see it. Uh, emotion is so efficient. The emotion of fear, for example, is so efficient that it will go right from your uh, retina, right from your eyes, mm -hmm. right to the emotional part of your brain. You don't mm -hmm. have to think about it. Uh, it'll go right to the emotional part of a brain and mm -hmm. it will immediately trigger what's called the fight or flight response. And you'll mm -hmm. jump out of the way. Mm -hmm. And that might save your life, that split second. That's right. The uh, split second you save, if you'd have to think about it, what do I do now? You know, uh, might be too late. So the emotions are a good thing. Anxiety is a good thing. Mm -hmm. you know, anxiety helps us plan for the future. Anxiety is a little different from fear. Mm -hmm. Fear is the fight flight response. Anxiety is worrying about, thinking about something, a challenge that's coming up, mm -hmm. a stressor that's coming up. Uh, and the next hour, the next day, or maybe next week, how am I going to deal with it? How am I going to do this? So what anxiety does is it helps us plan, helps us plan for the future. Mm -hmm. It's actually correlated with intelligence. It's called the shadow of intelligence for that reason. So anxiety is a good thing. Uh, so all emotions, uh, you know, have their positive affects. Even depression uh, is something that helps us pull away from a very difficult situation mm -hmm. and uh, withdraw a bit and maybe marshal our resources, you know, and have time to think about getting back in the arena. That's a common reaction if, if uh, you know, someone dies and you're undergoing severe, uh, you know, emotional uh, kind of depression or grief, we call mm -hmm. it. Uh, you know, it's very common to... Uh, you know, just not want to think about it, to pretend it didn't happen, mm -hmm. um, to have magical thinking, some people call it, that the person really is still alive. And I, I can't think about that now. I need to go and, you know, go off into a corner. Um, and grief is a good example. We'll, we'll just stick with that uh, negative emotion, for example. How do we get over grief? How, what's the best way to get over grief? Well, um, our cultures, all of our cultures, all over the world have uh, created this wisdom that's handed down through the generations about how to deal with severe grief. Mm -hmm. And we call them funerals or other rituals surrounding death. And when you look at them, when you look at these rituals around the world, all of them have several things in common. First of all, they almost force us or certainly strongly encourage us to face the loss yeah. of that very significant person. And again, a funeral is a way to do that. Mm -hmm. So if somebody dies and in the Christian religion, 
let's say, there's a funeral usually, there is some kind of a funeral, and that funeral says, come and face this death. Go into the next room and even look at the body mm -hmm. laid out in the casket, or at least the urn that has the ashes in it. Uh, in the Jewish religion, the body is buried immediately and you throw a shovel of dirt on it. And that's mm -hmm. called a mitzvah. That's a blessing. And um, in the, the Hindi religion, which is even more dramatic, the body is placed on a pyre and burned right in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, and in this country now, in the Hindi religion, my, my Hindu uh, friends tell me it, it's, of course, not a real fire, but it's a similar kind of uh, immolation. Mm -hmm. you know, it's electrical. Um, but all of these things occur with your loved ones around you, with your friends and loved ones around you, helping you to mourn effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, the old saying that your friends, you know, will multiply your joys and divide your grief. And that's what happens at funeral rituals all over the world. Now, as mental health professionals, we know what will happen if we know what happens if some ritual like that does not happen. And that is, in other words, if you continue to try to escape it or avoid it or not think about it, there's the danger that you won't get over it. You'll have what we call delayed grief reaction or mm -hmm. prolonged grief reaction or pathological grief. And a year from now, you'll still be you know, undergoing this severe sense of loss uh, without any resolution. Whereas facing it mm -hmm. with, with the help of loved ones or sometimes therapists uh, helps us process that emotion and it will repair. We, the emotion theorists say the emotion will repair. Mm -hmm. So all of our treatments building on that example with, you know, grief. Everyone experiences grief. Everyone eventually loses someone they really love. Mm -hmm. But only about 10% of the people experiencing that grief go on to develop a pathological reaction, a, a very problematic reaction. Mm -hmm. And usually it's because they have not availed themselves of the chance to face it. This has been most apparent. Mm -hmm. Just to finish up on this topic, this has been most apparent during COVID. Yeah. And the funeral directors mm -hmm. are coming to us and saying, you know, everyone has delayed their funeral. Funeral directors and mental health professionals are coming to, uh, or, you know, have been telling me that uh, everyone has delayed their funeral, sometimes months, sometimes a year or more. And then when they finally have it, if they've had it yet, yeah, and and it did begin to resume, you know, in the past, in, over the summer, when they finally have it, they say they're surprised to see these people are grieving just mm -hmm. as much as someone if the death occurred yesterday or or last week. That's right. It's just as intense mm -hmm. because they haven't gotten it up, they haven't processed it, they haven't dealt with it in an adaptive useful kind of way. Mm -hmm. So that kind of notion uh, extends to everybody who suffers 
from intense and recurring negative emotion, such mm -hmm. as anxiety. And the unified protocol, to get back to your original question, mm -hmm. uh, is meant to capitalize on that process, on our knowledge of that process or that function, and <clears throat> reverse it, help to uh, work with them to strip away all of the safety-seeking behaviors, all of the avoidant behaviors, and help them to face their negative emotion head on and adapt to it and cope with it mm -hmm. in a more adaptive way. Mm -hmm. I very much appreciate to hear what was the background when you were shifting from these single protocols to consider more these processes, these transdiagnostic processes. And as you share in these different examples, struggling with emotions and trying to run away from emotions in different ways to some degree or some form. That's what we all do. But what you found is that that's actually what keeps us stuck. That's the problem, how we're relating to those emotions. If I can ask a little bit more about this, when you were looking at these common processes, you have avoidance, you have how we understand emotions. You have negative affect. How did you identify those processes to come up with a unified protocol? Well, again, we, you know, obviously, I've been doing this a very long time. I you know. know. <laughs> uh, over 50 years. And, you know, we, we, we do our research. We do our <laughs> clinical trials. We we, do, we um, do a lot of research into the nature of emotional disorders, much of it sponsored by the, in this country, by the National Institute of Mental Health. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at these disorders, again, we, we can identify what we call that functional relationship or what some people are calling now that process. And that's where process-based therapy comes from, of which the UP is one. The unified protocol is a process-based therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so let's let's take another example. Let's take uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder. Oh, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> That's characterized by bizarre, what we call egodystonic thoughts. That just means horrible thoughts that seem to pop into your head that are sometimes horrifying. Nobody wants to have them. Mm-hmm. Like fears um, of stabbing my romantic partner or fears of stabbing my baby. Yes. Like that. And that last one is very common. So particularly mm -hmm. among young mothers. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, for that reason, every patient who comes into our clinic, and there are hundreds, you know, hundreds, many hundreds every year, who, if they are young mothers, we automatically probe for that kind of thinking because they mm -hmm. would never admit it to anybody. Yeah. You know, it's the worst possible thing they could think of that they would actually somehow harm their babies or their young children. It just pops into their head during time, typically during times of stress. Well, we know that everyone during times of stress has strange thoughts pop into their head. Mm -hmm. And it does seem to be stress induced. Um, but for most people, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. In other words, we kind of ignore it. We, mm -hmm. You might say, oh my God, where did that come from? And, and then you're onto something else and you forget about it. You don't make much of it. Mm -hmm. But there's a small proportion of people 
who uh, have a particular temperament or personality trait that we call neuroticism. Mm -hmm. People have heard of that term, you know, neuroticism, who are particularly prone to uh, a lack of tolerance of strong negative emotion. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, genetically, they're, they're kind of inclined to experience it more frequently than, the, than most people. Mm -hmm. And when they experience it, they find it particularly aversive. So it doesn't matter what the event is, but let's say it's those horrible thoughts again. But people who don't have this temperamental neuroticism, that is the thoughts don't evoke this strong negative reaction, mm -hmm. you know, because uh, it goes in one ear and out the other and, and they don't think about it again. But for people with this temperament of neuroticism, mm -hmm. this evokes a very strong negative emotional response they say, my God, I mean, does this mean I might actually do something like this? Mm -hmm. They do everything they can to suppress it, to repress it. And we know that uh, whenever anybody does that to a very strong emotional thought, it will tend to pop up again more frequently and more frequently. The more mm -hmm. you try to suppress it, the more frequently it will occur. Mm -hmm. Same thing with panic attacks. Panic attacks are a very normal way of reacting to stress. Mm -hmm. And by the way, these ways of reacting to stress tend to run in families. So um, if your mother or your dad happened when they were under stress to occasionally have a panic attack, uh, chances are you will too under stress. Mm -hmm. But many people experience that when stressed. And most people say, oh, my, gee, I really got to my heart rate started jumping up. I gotta take it easy, um, keep away from that Chinese food or, or um, whatever it was they think that might've caused it, even though it's, it's not really accurate, you know, it, it's, a, uh, it's just a normal reaction to stress. And in those cases, we say they have non-clinical panic. Yeah. That is they have panic attacks, but it doesn't become a problem because <laughs> they know it's, it's basically not harmful. And, and maybe 20 to 30% of the population experience that. But about one or 2% will have one of those panic attacks. And my God, they'll think they're dying. They're going to be carried away to the insane asylum. Yeah. And they'll never see their family again. And they do everything they can to suppress it. It's the most anxiety provoking thing in the world. These are the people, again, who happen to have the temperament of neuroticism. Mm -hmm. So what we've noticed is that there's many kind of triggers for strong negative emotion. Mm -hmm. But these triggers occur in many, many people without causing the kinds of problems that would bring them to see you mm -hmm. or another doctor or therapist for help. They usually are resolved fairly quickly. Uh, others would be insomnia. Yeah. Everyone has trouble going to sleep occasionally or, you know, has interrupted sleep. But some people, when that happens, say, oh, my God, you know, if I don't get back to sleep now, my whole day tomorrow will be ruined. I'll be uh, horrible at work. And they get so worked up that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and they can't get back to sleep. That's right. Other people just turn over and start counting sheep or listening to music or doing something to... Uh, breathe, doing some breathing, calm himself. So again, a lot of occasions where these things will occur 
but they only become a problem if you have strong negative emotion associated with them and mm -hmm. you suppress it, avoid it, or seek out uh, safety. Got it. Got so that's where we get the unified protocol. Mm -hmm. What we discovered is that we don't have to be too concerned about what the original trigger was, mm -hmm. whether it's a strong obsessional thought or insomnia or panic attacks or you know what have you, social anxiety. We have to be concerned simply to strip away that very damaging safety-seeking behavior that they have, the avoidant behavior, and help them to face the strong emotions more constructively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when it gets to be severe enough that they come to seek help from you and other therapists, other doctors, uh, you know, that's when they need that's that's when they need the kind of um, intervention that the unified protocol uh, can provide to mm -hmm. help them with this. But most people who do not have a strong sense of neuroticism, mm -hmm. and neuroticism is on a dimension, and we all have a little bit of it, it's and you know, some people more than others. It's not like you have it or you don't. It's not black and white. Um, but for most people, they won't actually need help. Sometimes it's enough just to be prescribed a good self-help book or to get some support when they're undergoing a lot of stress. Uh, but for the people whose lives are really severely impacted uh, by this, then it's very important to get some help and learn how to deal more constructively with your strong emotions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.com. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!